My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. In this episode, George A. discusses his journey in design and the unique perspective he brings as an adjunct professor and co-founder of Greater Good Studio. George delves into the importance of design ethics and the need for a shared understanding and framework across the industry. He highlights the challenges and opportunities of working with different types of clients and the responsibility that comes with tackling complex social issues through design. Let's get into it. My guest today is George A., co-founder of the Greater Studio in Chicago, as well as adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm great. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Harrison. Yeah, I'm super excited to get to know a little bit about you and obviously for our audience to get to know a bit about you as well. And we'll talk about just like your experience in design and some of your journey and like where you see things from an industry perspective, where there's some opportunities. I think you know, I'm really excited to actually get into some of this discussion because I think you also have a unique perspective just being like an adjunct professor and working with like future, if you will, of sort of design practitioners and thinking about even just like curriculum and how that plays a role in terms of how we approach things in a contemporary perspective. But before we get started, I usually like to kick off discussions with our guests with some icebreakers. Sure. And really the one icebreaker that I love to kick off with is what is something that you are currently obsessed with? Does it have to be design related or is it like a poke It does not have to be. Okay. Then you even have to I'm like related. super into poke bowls these days. Because I've been trying to work out how to figure out my diet. I've been recently diagnosed with being pre-diabetic. And I keep mm. telling everyone yeah. so that I could be held accountable to how to change myself. Because I'm trying to figure out how do I not lose joy? Because I get a lot yeah. of joy out of eating. How do I not yeah. lose all joy out of my life? Where I came from eating terribly and also not have an early death because of my own lack of ability to control myself. So I've been telling everyone about this. So I'm trying to change my diet. And it turns out that poker bowls go a long way to being the right balance of nutrients and just being very mindful of things. Yeah, I have this app called, I think it's called LifeSum. It's one of those calorie trackers. And okay. so that's been adjacent. I've been getting into that and just generally trying to take a little better stock of, I don't know, like a relationship with my body. I feel mm. like I lost a lot of confidence. Just going back a bunch of years when I, I had a skiing accident. The one time I went skiing, you don't see a lot of Asian skiers, no. by the way. So I went skiing this one time and then tore my ACL within 30 seconds of going down this hill, which is way too fast. It was the wrong, I was set up not very well. Like you were on black diamond for your first. It was not even that bad. It was just way over what I should have been doing. And I suddenly sure. realized, oh my God, this is for 10 seconds. Oh my God, this is really fun. And then 15 seconds later, I'm on my back with pain in my knee. And then I end up getting sled down the hill. Anyway, so for years now, I've had a loss of confidence around, can I still do things that are athletic, mm -hmm. eventually getting a surgery on my knee, but many years later. So anyway, just generally feeling like I need to take a little more care. Yeah. 
and the pandemic isn't helping obviously because everyone's at home so leaving leaving the house can be a struggle I, I did leave the house this morning so not for a pokeball i wish i had but just being a lot more mindful of even those mundane things yeah i don't know if this is at all what you want to talk about harrison but the, no this no is this is my... actually the last guest you'd love this the last guest actually we we're actually talking about this because he most recently got into golf Oh, yeah. And it's just like this realization of just not being able to do certain activities, like dynamic activities, lateral, like even for myself, like I've had an MCL tear surgery there. I've ruptured both of my calves. Yikes. So I'm pretty limited in some of the things I can do. And even just rehabilitating is already a struggle within itself. So mm. That's something that, that really resonates. So I know like you talked about the diet piece. So would you consider yourself like a foodie or is, was it generally just food was so, something that you really, you live in Chicago, so there's a lot of great places to y eat. Yeah. Not that I would go out to them because I'm a parent of three kids and my wife and I just make, sure. don't go out at all. We must have cooked yeah. at home. So I'm a foodie in that I eat food all the time and I cook all the time. And very rarely do we go out and occasionally, yes, we'll eat somewhere nice, which is much rarer than I would perhaps like. But yeah, if anything, food at home is a fairly interesting source of, I wouldn't call it quite discipline, but you know, I'm very keen to get my kids to cook more and to mm. for them to cook and be connected to what real food cooks taste like. I want them mm. to have, I have this funny thing of, I want them to remember these meals so mm. they have that baseline palette. Not that I need them to have a high fine dining palette, but just like they will associate love and connection through yeah. food. I want to be somewhat responsible for that. Yeah. So what would they be connecting to? Because they mm. might then make choices later, which nothing wrong with mac and cheese, but if mac and cheese and the box is the standard for love, affection, comfort, feeling safe, being fed, that will set a series of memories versus right. rice, chicken we may have made, homemade vegetables. Just It's a lot right. of work. It's not like we do this all the time. We'll be cooked three times a week. And yeah. some of it, some of those three times, it's just like frozen pizza. So they're making yeah. associations with Costco frozen pizza and the kids will be thrilled if that's all they ever left with. So yeah. there's that. So it's not like right. I'm being so, it's not about high fine dining. I just want to be intentional about what those things mm. are that they remember because I want them to have some, I would like them to have some connection to Asian food and yeah. with some intent that their dad was involved. Yeah. Because I have yeah. a lot of those memories from my mom. That's really what it comes to. Sure. Yeah. If you don't mind, like how old, like what's the age range of your kids? Yeah. We have three. We have an 11 year old, eight year old, and one who just turned four. Um, wow. Okay. So we have a good spread. My, they're at three different planes of existence. We have this 12 year old who constantly wants to have sleepovers with her other 11 year old friends and just trying to work out how much time they can spend with each other. My yeah. eight year old is going back and forth between devouring books pokemon and playing minecraft and occasionally he hangs out with his friends who want to do just yeah. those three things interesting and then my four-year-old i don't know what he wants to do he's just he's on another planet half the time he is like trying to still he's out of diapers thank god but like all these things that four-year-olds go through where they sing to themselves look out the out the car window watch peppa pig and struggle with getting their clothes on like just they're like yeah. they're on three completely different universes and it's yeah. wild to watch because you have to switch gears between them all and what it means. Question. But, what is something you don't think people talk about enough right now? That is interesting. I would struggle to find something that people haven't talked enough about. Yeah. There are so many things that people are constantly jabbering on around. I think the question becomes, what are you perhaps listening to that is echoing what you're already thinking? Because my Twitter feed is probably different than others, yeah. but probably also very similar to other people who I'm already listening to as well. So there's like design Twitter going off in the background and that there's a lot of 
politics, I guess, is the other. Those are the two main feeds. Yeah. Do, do, am I curious to know what is not being said? I do speak to, I've been given a lot of talks around design ethics. And I sure. think that the part of the rationale behind speaking about it is because I don't think people are speaking about it enough. So to more directly answer your question, that's what I think about that isn't probably getting as much airplay. Yeah. Specifically, the lack of a industry-wide ethical framework. Yeah. Because right now- I was going to say, it's, there's not like a single definition of what design ethics is. Oh, I man, imagine a, it- A, a definition, just to get to a definition would be huge, but that doesn't barely exist. I think what the one of the points of a talk I gave recently called That Quiet Little Voice is the notion of a BYOE, bring your own ethics. Mm. Most of the people that I know and work in teams with or have worked in teams with have individual, whether you would call it a moral compass or a set of yeah. standardized practices that are always pretty divergent from the next teammate. That is divergent yeah. again from the head of the team and there might be divergent again from the organization. And because right. there isn't really much in the way of a standard or a single mm. definition, if you will, it becomes incredibly risky, I think, to expose those teams to human subjects. So if the mm. exclusive domain of the design was to work only for Starbucks mobile app, let's say, and the risk of harm from misordering something was proportionally low, maybe we'd be all set. But design keeps showing up in places that it really is not quite ready for. Way more complex scenarios than a mobile shopping app because of the harms that those human subjects that we're talking about have already had in their lives for it to be either re-triggered or made right. worse through research. I mm. think the risk gets higher and higher and therefore yeah. we should be compensated by working out well, how much more clearly do we have to be, how much more carefully do we need to tread? And I feel like because of that lack of a shared understanding, what I often see, which is worrying to me, is the people who work on a personal shopping program for Nordstrom, their next yeah. project is a mentoring program for middle school math teachers. To them, it's like the same project, like boom, it's just, okay, now yeah. we go back to the Amazon Echo project and then, okay, back to math tutoring. And right. it's just like all scheduled on the Gantt chart and the process right. is exactly the same. The protocols mm. are the same. The cautions are the same. Yeah. In their mind, it's like, what's the big deal? It's the same process, different project, different clients. It's like, oh no, they're completely nuance. different. We can be as like, if the spectrum of nuance to gross, right? Gross is in like large and clumsy. Yeah. We're talking radically different industries. We're talking radically right. different subject matters and radically different humans. The subtle would be what kind of risk of harm have they already had? What kind of trauma have they already experienced? What is the pay issues? Where's the standards around how, what good quality looks like? Mm. like we can get all that, but let's see, just handle the gross differences first. So right. what worries me is when I meet with teams, man, I had this thing happen, right? As a studio, we got co-written into an application for a Gates project, okay? And we didn't get it. And then I got contacted by the team who did get, who got the project, okay? And they reached out to us because they heard about us or something and said, hey, George, we have you on our radar as an expert. And if you said, okay. And then they start telling me about the project. Oh, wait, I know this project. We applied for this. And I think in their mind, this expert interview gave them the right to then do the work that was around equity. I was like, that's weird. So when yeah. I asked them, because they were asking all these process questions, trying to like get out of me, like how, what caution should they have when talking to, in this case, vulnerable populations. Something about this feels weird. So it just asked the question, what project did you just work on? Okay. Yeah. That you, that you're coming off. They said, oh yeah, a personal shopping program for Nordstrom, <laughs> right? Which is the service of someone who is wealthy typically, but they don't yeah. have a lot of time. So I, this is what I've seen in movies, because I've never done this. You go into the store and you have people run around the store find you stuff and bring it to you so it's more like a really tailored really very thoughtful experience so that you shop without being burdened with browsing okay. sounds lovely actually yeah and this team we're going to then go to now do this project with vulnerable populations so i said 
how are you planning on adapting your process for this group? They're mm. like, I don't know what you mean. It says, have you considered that there might be other issues here that might be warrant some care? And mm. it was like crickets. Yeah. They didn't understand the question. I thought, what is happening? Yeah. So that's the, that type of stuff is what gives me concerns. That yeah. gives me like real worries. Yeah. And it's not even that person's fault. Like I sound like I'm giving that person a hard time. It's more, there's a shared lack of judgment, both from the team that applied, but also the program officer who granted the project. They yeah. couldn't tell that this team had neither the experience or the cautionary practices or the ways in which they're going to prevent harm. It was just like yeah. human-centered design, boom check the box you're done like the yeah. proposal boom like the cost we're good to go check to check yeah yeah so, my, so it's yeah it's like concerning on a multiple levels yeah one of my previous guests actually framed it as people are approaching design like as a verb right it's like the action of doing versus really understanding like the sustainable practice around understanding actual humans on the other side i think in concept right human-centered practice like feels good i think the question is no really do you really understand what that means question a, for you you mentioned this word like care like how would you define care it's so interesting to think about care at least for me in terms of harm or previous harm which sounds such a downer to think about it but there are classes of people we know who are considered a protected class right mm -hmm. and it's not because there is i think there are some conservatives who think that seems unfair or perhaps even in a twisted way, what that feels like is a racist. That seems you're being prejudiced. It's, I don't think you understand what you're talking about. Like that, you've misinterpreted the world to yeah. where you think discrimination, we're just talking about extra care. The reason why extra care is necessary is that the history of harm for that group has been so present. Yeah. So the demarcation of a special group isn't because we're like trying to divide the nation. We're just trying to be appropriate mm. for the history that's already happened. And the fact that you don't understand that makes me concerned that perhaps you've never had that harm. So I, I would have you, this fictional person, examine what protection you've always had that the mm. need for someone else to have it has never occurred to you. Yeah. Care in my mind is, you could think is, sending a food package or sending a note, which all counts, right? But yeah. I think there are some larger factors when you think about history and you think about large groups and you think about how those groups show up in society and how they're repeatedly treated, typically right. in a way that is harmful. So the yeah. care for them, I think it's about being commensurate about that history. Uh, Does historical it versus situational. Yeah, it's a difference between like weather or climate. Like you can have rain and it be a sunny day and still yeah. be oblivious to climate change in the same right. way that one of my best, like my best friend is black. Doesn't mean that you couldn't possibly have biases about right. African-Americans as a whole. You might have already been indoctrinated about certain values of that group of people as a whole. And yet you may still have a person you grew up with who is your best friend and will be at your wedding and is black. Right, Great for right. you. Yeah. They, they can both yeah. be happening. Yeah. I feel like that's a very like salient example that we hear quite a, actually examples that we hear quite a bit. So thank you for taking us through that. I've got one more question here. And what is something that has surprised you? Huh. If I can mention just the business for a bit, our studio, yeah. I've been pleasantly surprised at the number of people who are calling us who are primed to do this work. Mm. And I think what that connotes is we've seen a shift over the last, it was, we've been doing this for 11 years now. And yeah. my co-friend and I probably take 
between us, I'd say 99% of all the calls. That's changing, but we've done the majority of all the initial calls. And across the ones, at least I've heard, there was many at the beginning that were mostly just curious or didn't really understand what we did and we're trying to figure out how to fit them into their agenda, which all makes sense. And then over time, we started getting more people who were calling us because they saw a general need in the community and were just looking for any type of help. But now, and this is but no stretch like a guarantee. We're getting people calling us specifically for what we do. I didn't know that would ever happen, which is like, what a luxury, what a privilege that is. And I think there's been a few concurrent things happening at the same time. We have a portfolio, which is looks consistent. Thank God. Sure. So thank you to all of our clients who've taken the risk of letting us do those projects such that we create that evidence. We've been, I think, fairly consistent on our messaging on, on how we talk about the work and these issues, whether it's about ethics or other things we talk about and write about. And there's been a real growing readiness amongst our clients who are themselves design savvy enough to go, I think we need something that is in between a pure scientific methodology, pure social science methodology, arts and craft methodology, something in between all of those, something that would touch on a care about humans, but also a process to work through the, all that ambiguity. So we're mm. getting, I've been really pleased to see how sophisticated our clients are becoming around yeah. knowing that there's something, there's still a gap in our understanding yeah. around these humans that we care for and we protective of and we serve. And we want to get closer to what that gap is. And perhaps yeah. we can get somebody who can help us with that. That yeah. is so satisfying. Yeah. But also it makes me have a lot of hope and faith for this field because this yeah. field is maturing so well. If only testament yeah. to the fact that we have clients who like call us and say that we're not talking to anyone else. It'd be nice if they, I think it's, that's very nice to hear. I actually think it weakens the field. So I'm not looking for people to only look for Greta Gostude. That's not the point, but they have clarity over what they're looking for and they see a match in us. That is, yeah. that happens yeah. rarely, but when that happens, man, it's game over. Have you? Like, do you have any idea as to why? I'd imagine more organizations are conscious about these things, but... Yeah, I just think that think there's a growing acceptance that perhaps there is stories that go alongside the data. And a lot yeah. of organizations are data-driven, as they rightly should be, but they still yeah. can't find why there's still gaps in their behavior. Like, they can right. say with complete precision... Something is happening. I know where it's happening. I know who it's happening. I know when it's happening. I know where it's happening. Just not why. Yeah. And we've gotten really far with all the other bits, but the why part is still bugging us. Right. And the benefit of having an outside group can be obviously additional capacity. But there's like an approach that I think we often find where we aren't presuming we know already, which in right. many cases, actually, we have to kind of screen at the beginning of our call. So what we often right. do is actually check with our clients who, again, if they're calling us, I feel very grateful. But when we call, one of the real early questions we try to determine is, are you ready to have our research reveal that your thesis is wrong? Yeah. How do you plan on dealing when our participants, which are the same people you protect, outright yeah. say that you might be part of the problem? How do you mm. plan on handling that news? Because that yeah. sounds awkward to me. And I'll say this on the call. I said, that sounds like it'll put you in a really tough spot. I don't know yeah. if I'd want that. Yeah. Do you want that? And it usually splits right there. Some oh, wow. of the folks be like, yeah, that's not at all. We just need you to go do the project, dude. Don't, you're making this harder. That's not mm. what this call is about. We just need you to execute the RFP. It's all written. The plan's here. Right. And then another group say, yes, this is exactly why we called you. We weren't sure if that's a thing we could ask for, but yeah, we don't know. And we're actually asking you to get underneath all those issues. Cause if we don't, we might miss something. Yeah. And in those yeah. cases I go, oh, thank God this person exists because yeah. they're very rare. Yeah. I think it speaks to a really interesting dynamic around like organizations that do want to build in like a stronger, like research practice, only optimize it. <laughs> 
<laughs> for let's say maybe the bottom line, but not necessarily the reality of the situation. Would you say, do you think a lot of organizations miss out because they're not being real with- I, I don't have any interactions with commercial clients. Now, that's not, sure. the, our business is not built that way at all. We are yeah. only serving the social sector. But I yeah. would imagine, because I did work in the commercial sector for a long time, that yeah. if you've had a business calling us or just calling and looking for research help, whether internally or externally, yeah. there might already be a lot of baked assumptions. My fear is you have designers and researchers working on things to validate an existing thesis. And we only need enough research to prove that we were right all along. Even if the question is deeply flawed and the feature you're looking for, no one gives a shit about, we only need enough research to prove that we were right all along because someone's ego was too fragile to handle the questioning, not in the research, but up front, mm. like months before at the sponsor level, because they couldn't handle the confrontation and or the room around them wouldn't allow for confrontation. Months later, you have some poor team out in the field trying to assess some A-B testing on some bullshit Yeah. when actually none of it matters. So I can imagine that happening. Yeah. You're getting me yeah. all ranty now, Harrison. Yeah. All good. I love it. If you could briefly just tell the audience a bit about yourself. And then I want to get into the studio because there's a lot of amazing work that you're doing there. And yeah, let's start there. Okay. So just briefly, I worked and lived in London. After graduation, I grew up in England and then and built like a mini practice of doing computer rendering. I was like a person who could do an incredibly tedious thing that no one had patience for to do computer modeling and rendering. And this is in like the 2008, yeah, 2008 through into about 2001, like early days to make photorealistic imagery. In this particular case, ended up being of value to a global design consultancy that worked in the Chicago office. So that allowed me to leave London and emigrate and basically get sponsorship. And I felt very fortunate to be able to apply that skill to a design studio, which I'd never worked in before. And certainly not at a level because this is a global consultancy. It's like someone who's like learning to doggy paddle yeah. next to people who are like Michael Phillips. Is it Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps. Mike, Michael Phelps. Like yeah. Olympic level swimmers. And it's, what am I doing here? This is crazy. And I kept thinking like, there's no, everyone's going to find out I'm a complete fraud. And I held on to this like tiny thing I could do and... What I started to notice over that time is just how many weird like narratives will consistently show up around what we said we do and the impact it has and versus what we actually do and what we actually own. And that mm. discrepancy around what human-centered design is good for in the world, I kept being noticed was at odds with how many projects we actually did that I thought were quite harmful that we didn't mm. consider to be somehow bad because it was in this three-mile wide gray area. I think this is like the inherent conceit of human-centered design as a term is that by centering on humans, surely we are going to do right by them. And that is not true at all because who is sponsoring that human-centered design work actually determines whether or not it's going to be corrupt or not. So if our right. clients have only bottom line goals of profit, it will be hard to work out, well, what is there any other goal beyond that? And yeah. as a design studio, I never heard them ever question that. It was mm. mostly, can we do it for the right price? Because they were expensive. And can we do it in the budget and the frame? Because we have staff who are expensive to keep sitting around. So it was just mostly resourcing issues. Yeah. But the rhetoric was always so high-end and so inspirational of it being a general good for the world. I thought it actually doesn't seem to be true because I would literally worked on projects that I would say were quite harmful. And in yeah. my own time, whether it was for BP designing convenience stores, dude, I had a adult grown man, my one of my project leads 
say to me, yeah. we don't have enough one-handed food. It's like, what did you say? He goes, yeah, we don't have enough one-handed food that you can eat while driving. It's like, A, you're probably right, but what did you just say out loud? Are you saying that's something we should have more of? And we're saying, yes, you are. You are literally, you're not, there's no irony. You are yeah. literally asking to be in the air because you think that's provocative. Yeah. And that's what our client wants, which is to sell more one-handed food to eat in cars because that's what we're here to do. We're here to sell a product and a service. Both the clients are, and so was our design teams. Yeah. So look, I'm starting to feel gross every day. And yeah. it was starting to become more and more problematic. So I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this. I'm at the very mm. best design consultancy I thought in the world. And I thought, I don't know if, I, if going to another consultancy is going to help. Yeah. So I took like a complete left turn and went to the Chicago Transit Authority. Not super cool at all. Cool design <laughs> studio, big bureaucracy. Because yeah. I just had to make a break from like consulting and the industry as a whole. Like I want to still be a designer. I still feel like there's merit there. But I want to work yeah. in a place that is completely, has such a clear public mission. As broken as local government is, as broken as transit is, we're all clear what we're here to do, which is to serve yeah. a large population of people in an affordable economic way. Affordable and have high quality services. You can complain about it all you want, but it's still, that's inarguably what we're here to do. Yeah. And that I thought was it. I thought that was it. I was done here. I'm turning back to design. I'm going to be in government. And it was a shock when I got let go a year later mm -hmm. and just got fired and found myself having to go back to commercial design, which was another nail in the coffin because then I had to do air fresheners, okay, for a year. <laughs> and I thought, this is why I had to leave this. Huh. And that's when I got a teaching gig. And that's when we started the studio. We had mm. to find some way of finding real basic ability to pay our bills and work in a setting that was different. I think for the studio, at least, which is maybe where we would go, we made a fundamental shift, which is, I think we need to work with a different set of clients because they have different questions and therefore right. our design response can be wholly different. I don't want to talk about, is it good versus like bad? Is it moral versus immoral? That None of that is, I think, helpful to a discussion like this. I just found yeah. that categorically the questions were different. Yeah. And their entire place of being from the start was different. And that I found intellectually stimulating in a way yeah. that commercial clients no longer did for me. Yeah. And, and I feel like thematically, you just feel like you thought you could make a bigger impact from what I'm hearing. Being in those places, dealing with the bureaucracy and the politics just didn't allow you to do that. I also showed up at CTA like a bozo. I do regret a lot of how I showed up because I left this lauded design studio and like the idea of finger guns, right? I did this pretty much the entire person. I was that guy's like, check it out, dude. And like, you were lucky to have me is how I showed up the whole time. Wow. Such a tool. Yeah. And it was gross. Where, where did that come from? Cause I'd left the place that was, everyone had said, you're the best. You're coming in. And because I didn't have my own personality or a point of view or yeah. really a sense of who I am, borrowing one that was such a dominant external mm. image became yeah. my personality. So it exposed for me, if anything, just how fragile idea of who I really was. Yeah. So I took being fired actually, and then having to claw my way back to working out, well, what do I really want to do? And then mm. finally the studio has been, in many ways, saved me because it's yeah. allowed me to give the space to work out what do I want to do? What do yeah. I want to be talking about? What projects do I want to work on? And that is such an incredible privilege because very few people ever get to have the space to do that. I'm sure people would if they had, but it is actually quite scary to have to confront yeah. some of those questions because if you aren't bound by the typical things, what I notice is 
you aren't also using them excuses anymore. So if you take those excuses away, you go, what do I really want to do? I don't know. It's terrifying to have to ask that question. Yeah. Because there's a lot yeah. of judgment. That, I don't begrudge anyone struggling with that because it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. The way I found just problematic is now that we've done so much work in the social sector is when I see people who are, that remind me of my early self mm. who tried, either they don't know or trying to get away with hopefully nobody noticing that you could just copy paste design for commercial businesses into the design for the social sector and it would be totally fine. That makes me cringe and it makes me a little mad, partly because it reminds me of how naive we were and how out of touch we were. That kind yeah. of drives me nuts. So one of the things that I've seen within your agency and on your profile is you being like a pissed off optimist. Maybe break that down because we definitely, I feel like we got an idea of the pissed off, like, (laughs) which I think we've talked about, like some of even just like the general struggles that we see, or at least the disconnect. Maybe tell me a bit more around like the optimist side. What are the things that get you excited? Like, where is there a ton of potential? And in particular, I know we talked about just like the work, like maybe even at a high level, what are the types of like organizations that you tend to work with? Sure. So the term piss of optimist comes from my co-founder, Sarah Cantor, and it aptly describes, I think for the two of us, the inherent tension in wanting to remain hopeful that something can still happen, Mm. but mad as hell that something hasn't happened yet because there's a Mm. lot to be upset about. And I think if anything, it's about recognizing we would believe, I don't think it's healthy or sustainable to be only one of those two things. If you're constantly hopeful, I think you might miss the harsh reality for a lot of the people that we work with and serve of actually how hard things are. And if you're mad all the time, I think it will be exhausting because you won't ever have the refuel you need to keep going or what will be the point. So I think Mm -hmm. balancing both and not flip-flopping, but just holding them both in tension. Like I'm mad about things. I think there's lots of things to be upset about, but I still have this unwavering faith in us, in people Mm -hmm. to want to make it better. And that if we can, as a designer, for instance, Few different responses, either remove barriers, shed light, create more empathy, take away a cognitive block, or like create new tools in some cases to amplify someone's behavior or, or an action. To me, that feels like an appropriate way for my training to act out on that world. And I think that feels like a worthwhile work. I feel very, like I get a lot of satisfaction just in saying it, but I feel like I feel I could do that all day long. I could do that for years. I'm not sure if I would ever get tired of that. Whereas I did get tired of having impact in a commercial sense. Like I thought when you go back to this phrase, like having bigger impact, I thought I had plenty of impact. I was making stuff you could buy the Best Buy or Target. Like I felt like I don't want to diminish the impact that people have in commercial spaces. That is huge. It's world changing, but the goals are so different. Yeah. As a way to describe it, I felt like we had all of this incredible ability to impact and learn about humans and gain insight on them. And in the final moment, it would come out as, I'm going to make you change your mind about this brand of toothpaste or that brand of toothpaste in the grocery aisle. There's even mm-hmm. a term for it called a moment of truth. There was this whole like thing with Procter Gamble had this thing called an MOT, a moment of truth that we had to focus on as a design studio. What are the moments of truth? And I'm thinking, moment of truth, that sounds like life affirming. And you're talking about it in terms of choosing Colgate versus Crest. And so again, that's what you're talking about? Pretty low stakes. Bro. All right. So you could argue it's high stakes. Like millions of people impacted by this brand. Millions of people like all this stuff. And like blah, blah, blah. Like also it means like good dental hygiene. Sure. Yeah. But don't tell me it's like equivalent to whether or not someone's going to read their kid a book in bed. Don't Mm -hmm. say that this is the same of getting someone, you know, approved for food stamps or not. They are not the same. 
And that rhetoric around it being impactful, I get, but it is not、mm. equivalent to direct reconciliation around like systemic issues around harm and around race and identity that are present.、Mm. Because、yeah. to make those equivalent to me feels like grossly inappropriate. So to me, like the scale of question and the kind of problems we're talking about took me a long time to go. Oh my god, I am so in over my head. I'm no standing in this category. I'm not a trained PhD in anything. I don't even、yeah. have a master's between you and me. Okay, I'm not qualified to make these assumptions or guesses or recommendations about any of these topic areas. Like our clients are subject matter. In fact, they are dedicate their lives to these topic areas. Yeah. What we can do though is provide insight around humans as they are. And around their lived realities, and say, I think with their cooperation, we might design something that's better for them alone. We can bring that in a way that is, I think, careful as a player would, full of care、yeah. for those humans, in a way that has often been overlooked, made silent, or just ignored. We have a lot of appreciation for humans as they are, and that turns out is a thing you can sell、yeah. because there are some people who want to know that insight. So、yeah. we have like. Went from a world of things you could do to design commercial business down to social sector, and then of those, only people who really want to know like what the gap is behaviorally. It's incredibly rare to work、mm. with these clients. It's really hard.、Yeah. But when、yeah. we find them, and going back to your question, I usually go, "Oh, thank God, you exist. You are who we've been waiting for." And I go get choked up thinking about it because I go, "We always hoped you would exist." Yeah, but it's rare. That gives me energy for days, man. Yeah. What are some of the problem spaces? We have a bunch going on right now, so. Let's see which ones we've wrapped up or in the middle of. So we finished a project around reducing traffic incidents, like de- traffic deaths for pedestrians in、yeah. Chicago, Northwest Side. Working、yeah. with the Chicago Department of Transportation, we looked at increasing black and brown home ownership in Wisconsin, which is not particularly known for having black and brown、uh, residents, but they exist.、Oh, I'm from Milwaukee. Okay, so, so turns out for those black and brown home, sorry, black and brown prospective homeowners. It is not、yeah. like a credit issue, credit score.、Yeah. It's not about having money. It's they're fully eligible, and yet they are denied getting their foot onto the wealth generating mechanism that is homeownership. So, working with the Wisconsin Housing Economic Development Authority, I think it is, Eight Weeder. Designing like loan products and policies and programs to increase homeownership. We've worked with the Gates Foundation recently, trying to work out like how to increase the utility where there will be future. This is something I didn't understand. Future AI-driven English essay assessment. Do,、oh, do you remember writing essays in high school? Yeah. The pressure to write more essays is high, but the amount of work effort taken by teachers to really give feedback, high quality feedback, is pretty intense. So you、yeah. might not get that many rounds of writing.、Right. So the push to make it AI driven is strong. And then you'll have a computer evaluate your writing versus your actual home, your teacher, your English teacher. So the corpus. The body of English writing that they use and judge as good is a very narrow set of writing, typically、yeah. suburban white kids who do not represent、mm. the majority of young high、right. schoolers that exist in this country. So our、right. project was designing the principles for the AI, such that new tools will be built from that. So that's way in the future.、Yeah. And then maybe one last thing we're looking at right now is like we do a lot of placemaking work,、yeah. which is the term essentially to say how do we honor an existing piece of land. To have relevance to those who live there, and that can typically we、we'll、look in terms of a park or a baby or mural, but it has morphed into things where it's more like economic development or like democracy. Like, how do we make sure that people can vote? Like, it is、yeah. sprawling on all these different ways. Placemaking、wow. has, has developed, but working in place has become more of a thing for us. Like, we have a project in Cleveland, doing a project in Rhode Island. We've done some work in Texas. You could say everything has a place, but some things are like more focused on it more than others. But anyway, I say all this because I'm trying to highlight. 
we don't have a particular subject matter focus. Sure. Like our clients have that. We have yeah. process expertise, again, about humans. So we are issue agnostic to a degree. Yeah. Things in the future that we're excited about. There's hopefully, we've been waiting a long time. There's a criminal justice program, a project around that is place based, I'd say, as well, because it's around designing a co located office around the public defender's office and around adjacent services. That would be an incredible project because there's so much need already there. And then there's a project on the horizon that. Really, fingers crossed we're going to get around workforce development and around those who are not typically gone through like a four-year college program. They're individuals who've gone through like alternative means to get their work experience and they're often kept out of the larger economy. Helping our client do their work means understanding the barriers that those individuals face. So yeah. it's always really complicated. Yeah, It's, it's the kind but, of thing but, where you go, it's overwhelming yeah. how many, not the projects, but the overwhelming what the subject matter is. Yeah. And I feel very lucky that we've had these times, but also that this team is willing to dive into it so wholly. Yeah. Look, I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap up. Like you've got, you can have a very brief response to it. What's fascinating, this is like very different sort of subject matters that you're talking about. How do you feel? Like it seems like such a responsibility to, <laughs> you're right, like how do you show up? How you show up? Like also even deliver on that, right? Because the other hand is people's livelihood. So just has it changed over time? Has it been very intimidating or is this just kind of something? No, it is intimidating and it is rightly overwhelming because we often try to catch up with a lot of, in some cases, like decades and decades of issues. Like we actually are in the right. middle right now of something we don't typically do, which is have a topical project. Like it's in the news. Like we have a project yeah. right now with someone who has great standing in the sexual health and reproductive health spaces, but has challenges in being showing up in the reproductive justice space, which is adjacent, but different than. So right. sexual reproductive health has been a, like a public health issue for a long time. But yeah. if you add a social justice lens to that, you realize access to public health services for reproductive health have been different depending on whether or not you're a black lit woman or a white woman. And then adding on that ever-changing definitions for gender and identity makes it even more complicated. Yeah. That is not a topic that we had a lot of experiences going in and we have to quickly get up to speed on, which we able to do because our clients are helping us connect us with all the people who are experts. So the question then becomes, and this is repeatedly what we're trying to work out as a evergreen nightmarish rhetorical question. Question is, what do we have to do this work? What right do we have to show up to any of these spaces and have anything to say? What we end up trying to claw our way to and earn is, can we provide a very light touch process that would allow us to get insight without presuming we knew better, that someone else doesn't know enough. In fact, that in many cases, uh, the lived experience of those who we try to interview is what we put in as primacy over anyone else's. And that what we might earn is a sense of, I think we can respectfully and honorably take a small footprint and yet still provide insight into things that were hard to see. And that yeah. our outsider capacity can be a benefit while being very conscious that we could be a liability at any second. It, mm. it, it, the whole work is very much intention, and that's what makes it so stressful. Yeah. yeah. But I think trying to earn that right of what do we have to do this work is probably ultimately what we're trying to do. And I don't know if we've ever, if every time we've done a project, have we pulled it off. Thank you for taking us to the nuance because sometimes we get caught up in like the headline Hmm. of what's like trending. And I think it's important to understand that design, there are many different areas and where design can make an impact and many different ways where we can approach it. And I think just what you ended on, like we may not necessarily have the solution or have the whole thing when all is said and done. So 
appreciate you taking us through the journey and of course, highly relevant for this show. So thank you again, George. And one more question that I'll ask is like, how can folks find out about you, your studio, anything that's happening? Yeah, we have some social media channels, although we don't do a particularly good job of maintaining them, but going to greatergoodstudio.com obviously will allow you to see our work. Probably the best thing is to sign up for our newsletter, which you can access from our website. And then what we try to do as well is whenever we post about jobs and such, looking at our LinkedIn profiles tends to be a good place because we try to amplify sometimes our jobs, but also we do amplify the jobs of other yeah. like peers of ours. So we would like to stay abreast of things like that. Harrison, this has been great. Thank you so much for giving me the space to go off on a few things. Yeah, this has been, this has been, thank you for the space. It's been really great. Yeah. And look, what I'll do for the listeners, I'll provide links to what you've discussed. So listeners can easily find that in the show notes. I'll give you a holler next time I'm in Chicago. Cause that would be awesome. You would be the excuse I need to go nuts on my diet so I can, you'll be my excuse to go out for wings or ramen or almost anything you want. So yeah, please let me know. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.